Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clubo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Well, hello, everybody. This is Cliff, and of course, you're listening to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo. Today is another one of those circumstances. Bobo was unavailable for us, so we're just going to move ahead without him. And uh, I'm I'm certain at some point you'll get Bobo without me. So all the Bobo fans, keep listening. So I think you're going to enjoy today's episode. Now, just so you know, I want to plug the museum real fast. We just got done doing a the first step of our uh, expansion. We have about a half dozen or a dozen new displays up, and we're going to push even further and get another 15 or 20 up, hopefully by the end of October. So if you happen to be in the neighborhood of Oregon, please come by the museum, the North American Bigfoot Center, and you can check it out. Um, and other than that, I guess I'm speaking at the Minnesota Bigfoot Conference in a few weeks, although I don't know when this episode is going to air. And there, who knows? There's probably other stuff going on. But that stuff pales in significance to what we have going today for the episode. Today, uh, I am thrilled to have uh, Dr. Haskell Hart on the program here. He, of course, is the author of the Sasquatch Genome Project, a failed DNA study. Kind of, kind of a controversial book um, based on a controversial study by Dr. Melba Ketchum, of course. So, um, um, we, I wanted to get in deep with that, and of course, any chance we have to talk to somebody with a legitimate PhD, we want to jump on. More science needs to be brought into this field. Um, there's nothing wrong with amateurs doing the work, but when scientists get involved, it, it just brings our subject, the Bigfoot subject, to a brand new level. So with that, um, Dr. Hart, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo. Thanks for taking some time for us today. Well, um, it's a pleasure to be here, Cliff, and... Um I, I'm really honored to be on your program. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I'm thrilled to have you on. When I heard about this book, I, I bought it, I've read it, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of it went over my head because I don't have the, the chemistry background. I took a year of chemistry in, in college, well, in high school too, but in college, but that's all I have. So, um, I, but I, you know, I, one of my superpowers, I've been told, is that I can take very complex information and kind of distill it um, for normal people, you know, people without advanced degrees, for example, because I was a teacher for a long time. So, I, I'm hoping to do a little bit of that today with some of your your work. But before we get into the meat of it, Dr. Hart, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what makes you um, qualified um, as a scientist specifically to look into something like this? Well, uh, I have a PhD in chemistry. Any particular kind of chemistry, like uh, organic chemistry or what Actually, kind? Actually, of- it was physical chemistry. Okay. But I did research that uh, was also in organic chemistry. And um, I taught for 10 and a half years at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington and uh, general chemistry, physical chemistry, a couple of other seminars. 
Um, then I took a position with Shell in Houston in research as an analytical chemist and spent over 20 years um, solving chemical problems for, for Shell. Um, so I have a good background in analytical techniques of which um, really um, the biochemistry in, in this controversial paper are, yeah, is based on analytical chemistry really. Um, I'm not a biochemist, but I believe that I'm fully capable of learning what I need to learn in that area based on my background. Quite frankly, uh, I have not followed the Bigfoot uh, phenomenon uh, very closely. I, I kind of heard headlines from time to time until the Ketchum paper came out, and that's how I got uh, innervated and uh, involved. Well, now, now if it, from reading your book, uh, you write about your Sasquatch sighting that you actually had. When did that occur? And can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yes, um, that occurred uh, much more recently. Of course, her paper came out in 2013, and my sighting was in 2018. And, well, I was in southeast Oklahoma in the Wachita National Forest and um, walking down a trail and all of a sudden out of my peripheral vision I saw this motion and I saw I saw the animal in clear sunlight which is unusual especially in that area since there's a lot of high trees and it's very dense it's very few sunny areas so this was fortunate it had a nice reddish brown color to it as a lot of people have previously reported uh, contrasted against a green lit background which you couldn't ask for better contrast this is not dark gray on light gray or whatever most people see um, and i only saw it for i'd have to estimate um, between two and three seconds as it darted back into the woods, I tried to um, see it again by walking around and I, I did not. Um, so later, um, some colleagues and I measured the distance and it was 30 yards. Oh, that's nice and close, great. Which is close. I thought it was 50 yards, but I'm, I'm not good at estimating. And we, we did this twice, one guy stepped it off and also, he said, point to a tree that's about the same distance, and I did. Uh, this was back at the camp, and um, he measured it, and it was exactly 30 yards, too. So um, I'm pretty confident that's about, you know, plus or minus a little air there. That's how far it was, and that's also very fortunate. Um, and there were no obstructions in front of me that would have obscured the uh, animal. So I'm very confident that that's what I saw. It was large. We had a um, another guy stood out there. He's over six feet tall, and it was a lot taller than him and a lot broader too. So, and the vertical posture, the uh, the aspect ratio, vertical um, rather than horizontal, you know, makes it clear it was not a bear or something like that. And uh, it walked very fast, and I, uh, which a bear does not, 
on two feet, if it ever cuts on two feet. And so, and I heard a snap of a twig or a branch that it stepped on coming right from the same place. So, you know, I, I, that's another sensory uh, confirmation. So um, that's the long and the short of it. Were you able to locate any footprints or markings in the ground of any sort? The ground was disturbed, but there were no um, obvious footprints that we could detect. I see. Okay. Um, one last question about your sighting. Um, the, the well, maybe a couple more thinking about it. Um, but did you get to see the entire, you know, head to head to toe body as as it ran away or w- walk quickly away into the brush again? Or no, I, I saw it from the top of the head um, to I would say around the knees. Um, there was some lower lying brush that obscured the feet. Did, did it walk like a human? Um, I know superficially it walked like a human, but did you notice any um, distinctions? That, like, well, that was seemed very unhuman-like. Or Well, the arms were very long, and it was swinging them, um, as in a fast gait. Uh, I did see the hair. It um, There was some sort of clumped-up hair that stood out and uh, glistened in the sunlight. I didn't get a good look at the head. It was going away at 45 degrees. So I saw more of the back of the head and I didn't see the face. Um, so I can't comment on that. The arms were long is about the only uh, other thing I could add. Now, were you out looking for Sasquatches when the sighting occurred or was this an accidental thing you were hunting or something? In a general way, I was. Um, I went to this area because it's known to have uh, Sasquatch. Other people have seen them and observed uh, their doings. And so, yes, um, on this particular trip, I, you know, it was sort of like, I'm always alert. I'm a pretty keen observer of nature, but I wasn't just, you know, keyed in 99% to finding a Sasquatch. So it came as a, a little bit of a surprise. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, no matter how well you think you prepare yourself for seeing such a thing, if you're lucky enough to actually have it happen, there's no way you can prepare yourself. You're just like, well, that was silly that I even thought I could, you know, figure out what yeah, I would do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had a camera, but no time to, to get it out in a couple of seconds like that. Um, you know, uh, if I had been a little bit more on the ball I might have had it ready in my hands but then you walk around like that and you're so focused on your camera you don't see other things so I um that's just the way it was no picture oh yeah and two or three seconds really isn't long enough to get your act together to no your camera can barely focus in that amount of time you know yeah, when I'm driving the roads, when I when I go out bigfooting or whatever, and I'm alone, I'm driving the roads, and I keep a video camera right next to me, right next to me on the on the center console, and I and I tell myself I'm gonna video any animal I see, an owl, a deer, uh, whatever. Um, and throughout throughout the years, I've failed ninety five percent of the time. 
because uh, the encounters are so brief and you have to fumble for the camera and, you know, you have to turn the camera on and that's to cycle through it, the, uh, the software and all that kind of stuff. It's just ridiculous to think that we should have all these pictures of these things when you kind of had an average sighting in a way. It lasted two or three seconds. The thing walked away. You never saw it again. That's kind of the story for 80 percent of all sightings, it seems. I'm sorry to say that's true. Um, yes, you're very right about that. And one other approach one could have is to use one of these GoPros or, you know, um, a camera that's on constantly on your head, uh, directed in the direction that you're looking. Had I done that, I might have got some sort of video. I don't know how good it would be, but that's another approach. And then you do that and for days and days and still come up with nothing usually. <laughs> for that, that's the story, isn't it? I, I'm a huge advocate, and I, I think I sit, harp on it quite often on the program here, that I think every car driving in the woods should be equipped with a dash cam. Um, since, uh, you know, almost half of sightings happen from cars on the side of the roads. If, you know, if all these cars had dash cams like they do in a lot of European and Asian countries, we would have, I think, a fair body of footage of Sasquatches. Um, and the Georgia dash cam video would be uh, proof in the pudding on that one. Um, but yeah, I, I personally use a Garmin dash cam. I don't, I'm not sponsored by Garmin or anything, you know, but um, that's the one I happen to have. It's fantastic. But uh, if you want to spend less money, our listeners out there, get an $80 dash cam. You know, every, they're, they're so cheap nowadays. I bet, you, I bet you can get them for cheaper than $80. And you can drive roads at night and suddenly you're bigfooting and have a better chance of getting footage than almost anybody else. Well, that's a great tip. Um, I'm going to um, pick up on myself. Um, I hadn't thought about that much. Now, do you keep them on constantly or do you switch them on when you need them? The way that most dash cams work nowadays is that they're constantly recording. And so if you, you know, they're obviously made for accidents and things like that, you know, insurance purposes, but that's secondary to me. Bigfoot's number one on my list, especially considering where I live. But um, so if you're driving down the road and say a Sasquatch or a bear or anything else you want to capture runs out in front of the car, the, the camera's already recording. And so most of them, you just push a button on the camera itself. And what it does, it saves the footage 15 or 20 seconds, sometimes 30 seconds before and after you push the button. And that way uh, you don't have to go screen through, you know, 20 hours of you driving, you know, on the freeway. You just say, oh, right there, it goes in a special file. And those files are about a minute long or 40 seconds long, and they are saved in a separate spot. So you can go back and just go into that one folder and look at the things that you actually wanted to save. Well, that sounds like a bargain for 80 to to $100. Yeah, yeah. And there's all sorts of cheap ones that are available out there, you know, Amazon or your local electronics store. Um, and, and again, it's, I think statistically speaking, it is one of the most uh, effective ways one can go bigfooting nowadays. So. Sounds great. I'm going to do it. Let's get into the, uh, the the Ketchum study. And, you know, and for listeners out there who are, th- who are preparing us to gore their sacred cow, so to speak, um, we're not going to slam Melba or anything like that. We're going to talk about the science here, just the science, because um, what Dr. Haskell Hart has done here is essentially one of the steps of the scientific process, um, a peer review. Um, science is not a body of knowledge that these people in ivory towers protect at all costs because that's their worldview. Science, generally speaking, doesn't squash unpopular opinions if it stands up to peer review. Um, it, gen- generally speaking, if 
science is a process of getting to the truth by taking your data, taking your, your the things that you have here, and forming a model. Um, in this case, uh, well, well, the DNA stuff aside, for Sasquatches, we have this stuff. People say they see these things, that giant ape-like things in the woods. There are these footprints. Native people tell stories about these sort of things. There's this evidence here, and so we're going to come up with a hypothesis um, which, of, of course, is like a theory, but not as strong, shall we say. And hopefully, we can go gather more evidence. Um, and if the evidence supports our hypothesis and, hypothesis, and in this case, our hypothesis is that there's a wild animal responsible for this stuff, um, some sort of primate almost certainly, right? And so, we can go gather evidence that might support or not support the presence of a, some sort of primate in the woods. And um, if it supports it, great. We're going to continue trying to collect more evidence that supports our hypothesis, our guess. But if we run across evidence that does not support our hypothesis, then we need to modify our model, modify our hypothesis, and then try to go collect more. And really, one of the things that uh, about science that I don't think people appreciate is that scientists are not trying to prove themselves right most of the time. They're literally trying to prove themselves wrong most of the time. And if they can prove themselves wrong, then they have to modify their hypothesis. But if they cannot prove themselves wrong, well, maybe they're correct, but they continue trying to prove themselves wrong. So I want to get that straight out there because in society today, there is this anti-science bias um, the distrusting of scientists and specialists or whatever, because our phone tells us that kind of thing. And I want to get that out, that science in this case, in most cases, is not a body of knowledge that scientists are protecting because that's their worldview. It is actually a process of finding out what the truth is. And Dr. Haskell Hart here has done some of that peer review work. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're talking about the scientific process. We're not attacking individuals so everybody can relax. Okay. Um, so, Thanks for letting me rant for a moment about that. I just want to set the record straight, Dr. Hart. But um, how did you first hear about um, the Sasquatch Genome Project? Well, I think like a lot of people, I heard about it uh, on the news, uh, t TV news, because it was widely um, uh, reported there uh, by a number of TV networks. And so that, that was my introduction. And I thought, well, this is great, you know, because I knew enough about the subject that it was controversial and that there, other than the Patterson-Gimlin film, there was, and some footprints, there was little to go on. So I thought, great, you know, DNA, that's the answer here. This will uh, solve the problem of what kind of an animal this is and that it's, different from human or other apes or whatever. So I got involved um, basis. Everybody else, I paid my $30 and at the time you had to to get a um, copy of the online uh, copy of the paper. And so then I went, went to work from there. <laughs> Your background isn't necessarily in DNA, as you said, it's physical chemistry, not the um, organic chemistry. Um, so how much of a learning curve were you looking at at the time? Well, here's the thing. Um, as a chemist and a chemistry student way back into the 60s, um, I knew about DNA. I knew its structure. I knew what, it, what its function was. I remember when the Nobel Prize was given for the structure. 
And um, so it wasn't exactly a, a foreign subject to me, although I had never done any uh, actual research in the area. And um, the biggest learning curve, which wasn't all that bad, really, was how to use the National Center for Biotechnology databases to search a sequence to find what it matches. And these are this is free access. Uh, your taxes are paying for it. And I'm happy to say, in this case, you're getting your money's worth if you take the time to learn how to use the software, the search engine, and how to interpret your results, which is um, a little bit more difficult. So I, I'm the owner of two paths in databases. So I mean, using databases is not a strange subject. And quite frankly, you're uh, comparing two strings of just four different characters each uh, repeated, you know, A, T, G, and C, the four bases. And you don't have to be a biochemist to do that. It's a mathematical problem, quite frankly. And so that's how I approached it. Yeah, and, and just as a very brief primer, just for anybody, and maybe some young people who haven't got into chemistry or bi uh, biology yet or anything like that, um, your DNA are basically strands inside of the cells, uh, inside your bodily cells. And these strands are like the code of how cells re replicate themselves. Um, and your DNA is in every single one of these little strands, and I think it's safe to say there are billions of these strands throughout your body. Um, and again, if Dr. Hart, if I'm saying anything that's incorrect, because I'm reaching back in my memory 20 years to college and whatever else. And if, I'm, if I say anything incorrect, please jump in and, and correct me uh, or add to it if there's something else. That's correct. Um, Everybody's seen these double helix things. Looks, looks like a ladder that's twisted. And then the rungs of the ladder are actually uh, chemicals that uh, bond to one another. And when Dr. Hart mentioned the A, G, C, and T, those are abbreviations for, I forget, if I, I don't know what kind of stuff they are, but I'm sure you do. But they're basically the code. And by having billions of connections of these four different uh, chemicals in, that are, make the rungs of the twisty ladder, the helix, in other words, or the double helix, um, that gives us a unique uh, code that basically tells the cells how to reproduce themselves exactly. And of course, every once in a while, every, I mean, mistakes are made and the mistakes are introduced. And that's what we call, uh, well, that's, that's, that's basically some sort of change in, in the, in the, in the pattern. Uh, um, and that's how evolution happens because those changes become more prominent, etc. This is literally the basis of all biology, essentially, is what we're talking about. So all biological sciences rely on this information and evolution, including human evolution. Sorry, folks, but it's true. Um, so if you like going to the doctor, you can you owe the doctor's uh, knowledge and education to this subject that we're talking about now. So, But at the basis of it all is chemistry. We're big bags of chemistry that are doing stuff, and our chemistry replicates, our, replicates itself through this DNA. The DNA is the code that tells it how to replicate itself. Yes, uh, that's very true. Um, it codes for proteins, and proteins are what make your body work. Uh, structural, as in muscles and bones and things. And then enzymatic, which are the catalysts for all your biochemical reactions. And um, just to pick up on what you said, 
um, your description of it is called the central dogma of modern biochemistry. And you're absolutely right. Every, everything is um, traced back to that. And speaking of chemistry and the relationship and my background and so on, actually it's interesting that the two Nobel Prize win winners were uh, a microbiologist and a physicist who applied principles of organic chemistry, which I studied and did very well in, to understand how these bases hydrogen bonded together and how the structure wrapped around that. And so they're operating in a field that was not their own and they got, interestingly, the Nobel Prize in medicine and physiology, yet another area. So this just shows you how uh, modern science is very interdisciplinary and don't ever let anybody tell you, as some have done on this, uh, in this controversy, that you don't have the background to do this uh, because the Nobel Prize winners uh, on paper didn't either. Yeah, I think, I think it's fair to say that uh, many of science's greatest advances have come about because someone who didn't study that particular field got their nose into it and, and applied their own knowledge towards something else. And like, as you, you said, one of the people who got the Nobel Prize was a physicist dabbling in basically, you know, organic chemistry, but he had certain knowledge and he wanted to apply it to this subject. So, and I think Bigfoot is like that too. There's so many different aspects of the subject. And so you're a physical chemist who's now looking into the DNA stuff with your own perspective and your own expertise. And um, that kind of stuff should be welcomed. People of all backgrounds and uh, bodies of knowledge should be welcomed to look at anything because you never know what new eyes put on something that are going to reveal. Yes, I, I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso en Satélites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Okay, well, so you downloaded the paper, you paid your 30 bucks, and you started reading through it. Um, what were your first thoughts on, on either the data or the procedures or anything like that? Well, um, a lot of the details were unknown to me. I had to go look up references and study them, buy a couple of books and download some papers from the internet and so on. Um, because, I, like I've said, I'm not a biochemist, but uh, I was able to understand it after a while. Um, it was, to me, uh, at first, uh, a very wonderful discovery, um, and I felt that this would be a good opportunity for me to delve a little deeper, to take the published sequences and in fact, um, check uh, the results and the matches to the database 
and that I would learn a lot about the whole subject of, of DNA by doing this and also uh, species identification. And so that, that's what interested me and what got me started. And uh, to be honest, and I've mentioned this before, at first I thought she, uh, the paper uh, was correct in its identification. Um, a lot of things were like 95% matches and so on that to somebody just getting into this particular database uh, seemed like a good enough match to me. I later realized that that's not true. If you want a, a species uh, match, you really have to be above 99% in most cases. Uh, like all of the humans in the world, their DNA matches by 99.5%. Uh, all our differences are in the half percent or so. Something that you mentioned, because 95%, you know, for, for people going to school and stuff, that's an A. That's a solid A for on, on whatever paper you get or, you know, test you take. And it sounds good enough to me, too. Um, but then again, you have to take a few steps back. And, and, and is this why that 95% is not good enough, I'm, I think is my question. You have to take a few steps back and realize that uh, uh, these, these pairs, these matchings that we're getting 95% matches on, aren't there billions of those? Um, and 95% out of a billion is kind of a, a big miss in a lot of ways. Well, you're right. The uh, human nuclear genome is 3.3 billion base pairs long. The mitochondrial genome that's in the mitochondria and, and what you inherit from your mother only uh, is much smaller. It's uh, 16,568 base pairs only a lot shorter, so it's uh, used a lot more for identifications. And, and that's what uh, Dr. Uh, um, Ketchum was doing, is that correct? Well, she did both. She, she did nuclear sequencing and mitochondrial sequencing. Um, but get, getting back to the 95%, um, there are genes that are, are called conserved because they don't change much uh, through evolution. They're, they're working so well that there's no uh, biological drive for them to change because all mammals have a lot of similarities, okay? Even though we look and eat differently and this and that, our breathing apparatus, our heart, and a lot of this stuff doesn't change that much. Maybe only the 5% change, you know? So 95% um, I can show you sequences, human and bear, that match 95%, and not the whole genome, but certain regions of it. And that's where um, I think the problems came in, in this paper, not recognizing that fact and accepting 95% uh, when, when it matched so many different things and throwing up your hands and saying, well, it must be a new species because it doesn't match anything, but it matches everything 95%. Okay, and I think you just brought up something really important as well, is that we're talking about sequences of DNA versus the entire genome. 
Uh, maybe maybe we can clarify that for our readers because ninety five percent of the entire genome may be a different story because people have probably heard I say to my presentations all the time that you know humans and chimpanzees are ninety eight point something percent identical in their DNA. Um, so 95 doesn't seem that far off. Uh, we're 60% identical to earthworms, for what I understand. So when you talk about a sequence of DNA, contrast that for our audience, please, with the entire genome. What are we talking about here? Very good question, because um, the paper in its title, even, said it had sequenced three complete genomes, nuclear genomes which are, as I said, would have been, if, if we're human or like human, about 3.3 billion base pairs. Actually, they didn't do that at all. They used only uh, chromosome 11 reference, which has 135 million base pairs. And of that, the sequences they got we're much smaller still, 2.7 million, 0.5 million, and 2.1 million, respectively, uh, base pairs. Uh, nowhere near the 3.3 billion, and not even near the, the whole chromosome 11. So right away, there's there's a bit of a, an offset. Um, and this is where the problem came. They used a human reference. So all the sequences they got were what I just mentioned were conserved genes that didn't differ that much between a bear and a monkey and a human and an ape. And, and so it's, it's a preconceived notion there that led to the problems. Now, when you say a human reference, what, what is that? Are they they're comparing their, their, their strands to a human and looking for similarities? Yes. When, when you do this uh, sequencing of these large genomes, you essentially break up the DNA into small segments um, enzymatically. And then um, you one approach is to take those small sequences and if you're pretty sure of what you have or, or that it's close to something, you use a complete reference sequence and human DNA is known, all 3.3 billion base pairs, and you match these little segments to various regions of this reference. And that allows you to... Um, then um, put them back together and come up with a larger sequence, sometimes a whole genome, sometimes not. And so it's a quick way to match these segments up. And uh, since they overlap, you can, you can get a longer segment from smaller ones. Now, this is only appropriate if you know what what you're dealing with, or at least uh, what genus or family of animals. Otherwise, the sequence, if it's far, if the reference is far from your actual unknown sequence, the only things that are going to match are going to be these conserved genes or fragments of genes uh, that haven't changed very much. And you won't get a complete genome like they did, because the bear doesn't match the human very well. 
So it sounds like they started off with an assumption that if these are Sasquatch, you know, samples, then we should be able to uh, compare to them to human because humans are also primates, which seems like a logical assumption. But it sounds like maybe what happened is almost like comparing um, like, like maybe a human to a tree. Obviously, humans and trees, uh, you know, our last common ancestors a long time ago, not a really good comparison. But when you look at a human, we kind of have a trunk and we kind of have branches and we can see the similarities oh, and in hair because of the leaves. Or we can kind of see the similarities between humans and trees structurally. And so they were looking for something and they found it, even though if it wasn't there. Is that what's kind of similar? They found fragments of it, these conserved genes. Um, but they got so little of the total genome, you know, 2.7 at most, a million out of, you know, one, less than one-tenth of a percent of the whole genome for even the largest of their three sequences. 2.7 million out of 3.3 billion is less than a tenth of a percent. It's less than one one-thousandth. Um, so... Yes, it's a preconceived notion, and when you have an unknown species and you want to just open the book to anything, there's another technique called de novo, which doesn't use a reference, but looks at all these fragments in the computer, of course, and looks at where they overlap, you know, where several bases are the same at the endpoints of two of the se uh, small sequences. And then you link those two together based on their common several uh, bases at the tips. And then that forms a bigger sequence and then you can link it up on its ends with some more of the fragments. So de novo means just um, uh, a priori and without any assumptions. And that's what should have been done. And then their results would have been much clearer as to the species involved. So you went in and you actually took Dr. Ketchum's data itself and you ran that through the system again? Is that, is that what you did for the next step? Yes, um, I took, I would call it her results, that is her sequences. And I, um, and you know, there was no way to question those um, in terms of their accuracy. You can question how they were obtained, but but actually I, I just assumed that the sequencing for what it was was correct, a little limited. And then I searched the National Center for Biotechnology Information's databases, and you have to search more than one there. And, uh, and came up with these matches, which were for one of the sequences was a black bear, another was human, and so close to human, you, you really couldn't tell. Now, if Sasquatch is that close to human, well, that could be one. And then the third one matched, a, a matched dogs very, very well. And uh, that's the one that came from the downspout with the bite marks. And you know, primates usually don't bite in the metal. Dogs bite everything, so that kind of matches. You know, that's not proof, but it's it's consistent. Let's say. So that's that's what I did, and then I took her mitochondrial results, which um, you know, in your mitochondria in your cell are these other sequences, which are circular and uh, fifteen thousand six hundred. 
16,568 bases, plus or minus a couple. And those are inherited from your mother because the, the egg has mitochondria, but the uh, sperm does not. And um, they're a very good way to identify species, and you don't need to sequence that whole 16,000. Just small segments are, are characteristic of various species. And she did this, and um, of course, she sent it to a lab that only deals in human um, things. Uh, family tree DNA is one of these um, genetic um, ancestral type sequencing labs, and they do a good job on humans. They did mine. They did my wife's. We, you know, I use those as kind of references. And um, the problem there is their methodology, their sequencing technique is designed for humans only. And I proved that because I sent them some horse, some cat and dog DNA and it didn't sequence at all. It didn't amplify, which proves that, you know, it's not a general technique, it's only for humans. And what they got um, could easily be attributed to human contamination, or at least you couldn't exclude that because only a human technique was used. And, and you could have you know, a bulk of bear DNA and just a little bit of human DNA, this method is so sensitive that if it's specific for a human, it's going to pick that human DNA and sequence it. Now, what if we had a close relative to a human? Like maybe uh, I'm an advocate, for example, of the paranthropus hypothesis that Sasquatches are probably paranthropocenes uh, or might be paranthropocenes, I should say. Um, would, would the human, uh, I'm going to say primers, is that the right word? Would the human, would the human primers am, um, amplify DNA from a paranthropocene? I know there's no way to test that, but... Uh, or from a chimpanzee, for a bonobo, for example, would what would be effect? What would the effect of a human primer on a bonobo uh, sequence be? If the primers were chosen appropriately, they could also sequence or, or amplify and sequence apes, and possibly, you know, if you had it, some more ancient humans. It um, it might depend on what region you prime. But because apes, for example, are, are so close to human genetically, um, you would probably, uh, with those human primers, you'd probably get amplification. You'd have to do an experiment, you know, with some ape DNA and the human primers, and, and that would answer the question, you know. It's a good question, by the way, that I don't know anybody's done anything about. I could look at it. Yeah. But again, um, I think maybe this is an example. It's like, uh, you know, Cliff with a degree in music um, offering questions to someone with a, a deep level of expertise. Um, new eyes on the same subject often yield new results. And I think that's, uh, we were talking about that a little bit earlier. Certainly raise good questions as you do. I didn't know your degree was in music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I play jazz guitar. <laughs> oh, that's right. Now I remember, yeah. So um, it's all... It's all in the primers, um, and when um, Bart Catino and uh, independently Tyler Huggins sent what were reported to be part of the same sample that Melba Ketchum got, number 26, when they sent them to 
independent labs and uh, their primers were used. They got, they got their DNA sequences and they got a little bit of human too when they used human primers, but there was much less of the human DNA than there was the bear DNA. So that kind of proves the case that the human was, was a contaminant and the bear was the bulk and not the opposite. Yeah, that sure sounds like it. And, and you know, one of the, the astounding things that I took away from your book um, is that apparently, I, correct me if I'm wrong again, please, but um, when she ran the results, Black Bear was not part of the database at all? Is that correct? Um, it was, but there were far fewer sequences in there uh, than any of the other major bears, for example. Um, polar bear and panda have been studied more because they are threatened. And so um, the black bear data was limited, and the largest sequence that I found that matched was only 290 base pairs. And being an, a little bit new in this, I thought that that was not enough to prove anything. That even though this 290 matched, I thought it was probably a conserved region. And um, I missed the boat there, of course, so did she, until I started looking later at um, other databases and data from outside uh, sources, uh, was I able to show much better match to black bear. So essentially, um, there was one database in that uh, collection at the National Center that had she looked, she would have found the black bear. But I didn't find that database and explore it until later as well. Um, you know, it's, it's not the most common of their databases that are searched. Now, however, there's more black bear data. And in fact, one of the databases has the complete black bear genome. And I addressed this in one of the chapters in my book where I searched that. And boy, you get excellent. Um, a lot of the subsequences match 100%. The reason they all don't are just the same as the reason all humans don't match exactly one another, because we have mutations from one another, and so do black bears. So, you know, getting over 99.5% is, is really quite good. And I got a lot of hundreds, I got a lot of 99.9s, and, you know, so that, that was really the, I was so thrilled when they finally came out with that entire nuclear genome, uh, which was not available to Melba Ketchum, but there were other sources that she could have searched. So uh, the, the longer the sequence, as well as in combination with the number of, uh, I guess, uh, um, samples, I guess, um, all that helps really solidify and zoom in on the actual um, creature that we're doing the testing on. Actually, yes, you're very right. The longer the sequence that you match, the more likely you are to have uh, um, a correct match and that you can draw a conclusion. And this is something that I'm, I'm sorry to say, and I'll be in a newcomer and stuff to some of this, a lot of the current uh, geneticists, they all want to break up a sequence into little 60 base pair nuggets. 60 to 100, and then they search those and they try to put it all back together 
And it's really, um, I can match a human 60 base pair sequence to almost any mammal you choose. Because it's if I pick a conserved gene, they're going to be the same. People were making comments, these are geneticists, that Melba's Ketchum sequences matched a pig, a possum, all kinds of stuff. Well, a short segment of it could, but not the whole length of, of what even her whole sequence, uh, 2.7 million base pairs, um, or even a large fraction. Most of the sequences that I got matches for were, were the best ones were in the thousands of base pairs, over a thousand. And um, that's very convincing. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Now, um, I thought that uh, it was very charitable in your book because I mean, people on the outside or, or the people who are strong advocates of the Ketchum study, um, they'll see this as a takedown. And I don't see it as that at all. I see this as a peer review, a necessary step in the scientific process. And if we are advocating for the introduction of science into the Bigfoot subject, this is it. This is the growing pains. You know, sometimes you're going to be wrong. Um, and that's just part of the game. And uh, I think it's a Feynman um, quote. It says, if you're doing science, you're not being wrong. You're not doing it right. And I, I think this is an important thing. Um, but uh, I think it was very charitable of you in the middle of this book, you said she may very well have Sasquatch samples, but these particular ones that I'm speaking to are not Sasquatch. Um, what do you think uh, the, the chances of that are, and um, what steps might be taken to verify that or explore that possibility? Well, that's a good question, too. Um, one of the chapters that I think you're probably referring to, I found some very unusual mutations in several of her um, mitochondrial sequences. These are the ones that are uh, 16,000 plus base pairs. Um, very unusual. And in combination, the database had no humans that had even two of these, uh, the three major ones. And uh, certainly none had all three of them. However, I also searched uh, the other primates uh, by, by family. And I found that these mutations were much more common in other primates. Not so much in chimps or gorillas, um, but in other primates, the monkeys, the lorises, uh, all the others. Uh, did you test orangutans by any chance? Yes, I did. And um, the sequences didn't they were better, there were more of them in orangutans than humans, but still not very many. Uh, so not, not very good matches um, over uh, a number of samples. So, so there's a possible hypothesis there that maybe Big, Bigfoot has um, some latent primate uh, sequences in its mitochondrial DNA. 
Because that's a, that's something that I don't think a Bigfooters explore. Because I, I said just f- five minutes ago that I'm an advocate of the Paranthropist theory of Sasquatch. Um, and of course, everybody knows about Gigano, Giganopithecus, and all that jazz. But something that I don't think is given enough press, so to speak, or you know, or n- enough talk or enough attention is um, that Sasquatches may be something completely novel, completely new. Um, in some ways, and however unlikely that is, and I'm not saying like a new family or uh, something like that. What I'm I'm saying is, what if some sort of you know monkey? That, and I don't know. I mean, there, there's other possibilities. I, however unlikely they are, there's other possibilities than than the ape or human sort of thing. Um, it, I think it's extraordinarily unlikely, actually, but it's possible. Um, and, and maybe this is an indicator, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying this is supporting that idea at all, but, um, results like this, right. I found these mutations and are more common in monkeys than apes that at least opens the door to that. Maybe we're looking at something completely unexpected. And, and I think that's an interesting and exciting possibility. I don't think that the data supports it at this point, but it's at least something to kind of kick around to see if any data might result out of that. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, uh, there, there needs to be a lot more, um, data collected and results and interpretations of that before we could draw any kind of conclusion. But I found it very interesting that um, of the samples that shared these unusual mutations, they were from different areas. One one was from New Mexico. A couple of them are from California. And I think, um, I think there was one from British Columbia, too. So um, it just... You know, it's unlikely that these were all sequencing errors, all the same base position positions. Uh, there's something there. These samples are related, even though they come from different areas uh, of, of North America. Um, and so much more data needs to be collected, but it just seemed like an interesting possibility. That's all. A possibility, like you say. Do you think there's any avenues um, of exploring these three mutations that uh, might yield some uh, results we can work with somehow? Well, I think if um, people collect what they think, you know, hair samples or feces or whatever, uh, of course, the closer you can get to a provincing of it, you know, like a seeing a Sasquatch rub against a tree or something and then getting the hair would be a lot better than just picking up a hair in the woods, not knowing where it came from. But, but um, if, some, if these mutations persist in other samples, even if you don't know exactly where the sample came from, but it comes out to be close to human like that, then I think we have something because... These are extremely rare mutations. I mean, no human in the database has more than one of them, and very few have even one of them. And none have two or three of these like they appear in, in the sequences in, in the paper. So, you know, that's it's a, it's a possible avenue. I think people should uh, keep these in mind as they do their own uh, DNA sequencing. Have you explored um, and, and investigated and done any research into um, uh, the DNA sequencing of ancient humans? Um, and I think 
primary amongst these would be Homo denisovans because that entire species was initially identified by DNA. They had a, a phalange bone, if I remember, a finger bone in a cave, and they initially thought it was Neanderthal. But when they ran a DNA sequence on it, they, they, they having the entire Neanderthal genome um, and comparing this to that, they said, this is not that. This is a new species. And since then, of course, um, other samples have been discovered. Uh, a jawbone, it turns out, what we had possession of a jawbone since the 1980s and um, misidentified it. I think they identified it as a Homo heidelbergensis, turned out to be Homo denisovan um, upon DNA testing. And even um, as recently as July 2021, um, the thing that made the big news is that the dragon man, you know, Homo, I forgot what the name of that they gave it to this thing, a big, big skull out of China. Um, some people think that it's a new species of, of human and others think that it perhaps is a, the, the first you know, skull remnants of a Denisovan being discovered. Um, so there's a, there's a growing field uh, in paleoanthropology about DNA sequencing of ancient humans. Have you explored those avenues at all and how they might be um, useful for what we're all trying to do to prove the Sasquatch? Yeah, um, actually, I, I am aware of the Denisovan results, and I've looked at them, and I always include um, Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon, Denisovan, in, in my searches. Um, I'm not, I wasn't aware of this recent discovery in July. Um, maybe you can send me something that would lead me to, to the published result there. And was DNA sequenced from that sample or not? No, no, they just dug up a skull basically, or the, at least the back part of the skull. So It may be too old, but they, they it might be worth trying and they, anyway. Um, so that's interesting too. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, when I do some searches that I'm not sure and I think it's human-like maybe, I, I always include these other uh, humanoids, let's call them. Do you know what kind of primers they used? Probably some, probably a human one, I imagine. Probably, probably. Or you can also use a universal primate primer. If you pick the right region and form a primer based on that, it can uh, sequence primates but nothing else. Interesting. I didn't know about that. Okay, so you don't have to be that specific. Um, if, you're, if you're using a more general primer, do you get more general results? That's right. You do. You can use a mammalian primer, a fish primer, uh, all vertebrates. Um, if you're if if they're carefully selected, you can pick the group that you're uh, focusing on and eliminate everything else. But then after that, you kind of have to drill down a little bit to get specifics. Or oh yeah, yeah. Actually, if you pick a more general one, then and this is what I'm doing now. I have some environmental DNA samples from um, water sources in southeast Oklahoma, and I'm working through that data. Now, environmental DNA we hadn't talked about, but it's somewhat like ancient DNA in that it's got more than one kind of DNA in it. Um, and so stream water, of course, has everything that ever went into that water. Um, and so it takes, I, I found it's a mass of data you get, and I'm writing computer programs to sort through it so I don't have to do it manually because from one sample you get tens of thousands of sequences. 
by this what's called next generation sequencing. It's in a flow cell and there are little sites that are laser scanned and each site produces a sequence for you. And some of them are the same as others and some of them are different and you've got to get rid of the duplicates and focus on the unique ones and um, I've been working on this for months now and I'm getting there. It's uh, I'm not ready to report anything yet but um, I'm getting a pretty good focus on the human-like sequences in these water samples. Now, are these water samples taken from running water or still water, and does that even matter? Yeah, good, good question. Mostly running water, the more interesting areas were running water. But I do have some from uh, lakes and ponds as well. I kind of wanted to compare them, you know, and uh, uh, my biggest hopes are from certain uh, running uh, streams and rivers. Just me thinking about this process, wouldn't running water disperse the genetic material too much? Or are there still, like genetic material is so prevalent in the environment, you can't get rid of it no matter what? The latter. The latter, okay. I mean, it's just amazing. If I, if I put a fingerprint on a glass slide, they can sequence that. At least uh, the mitochondrial sequence. You know, it is so, the techniques are so sim, uh, so sensitive. Uh, the amplification process um, takes sequences and every cycle doubles them. And, and so, you know, in just an hour or so or two, um, you get billions and billions of replicates of that sequence. Yeah, so it's an exponential growth as opposed to a linear then, because if you're doubling and doubling and doubling. Two times two times two, yeah. Geometric or, you know, you could call it exponential. It's, it's geometric. It's a mathematical terminology. But, but yeah, it, it, uh, that's what's so powerful about this. You know, they can take fingerprints even. And I've seen a paper where they took some old forensic samples where the cases are all solved and they kept them anonymous, but they were able with half a centimeter of hair to, to do a, a mitochondrial DNA sequencing. Half a centimeter of hair, getting the medulla out of that. So it's that sense. Now, of course, on Sasquatch hair, one of the, the characteristics that Dr. Henner Fehrenbach has determined is that there's a fragmentary or complete lack of medulla. Um, does, does that pretty much confound our efforts here to get DNA out of hair for Sasquatches, or is there another is there a workaround for that? Um, it makes it extremely difficult, I would say. Um, if you can find a region where there is some medulla, then that would be good. And there may be some DNA even when there's no medulla. I'm not sure about that, but I think there may be some. Yeah, because the hair itself is protein, am I right? Largely. The, there's an outer uh, keratin, it's called, and in, in the uh, follicles, and the cuticle, I mean. And then inside, uh, there's, there's DNA in that medulla. The cortex, I don't think, has much. I think it's mostly protein, but but inside the medulla, there's some DNA. And, uh, of course, with a hair sample like that, you might also have some good DNA on the outside of it from the same animal. 
got to be careful because it could be other animals that it ate or came in contact with the hair, you know. But, um, you know, uh, animals rub their hair and stuff and sweat on it and whatever. And so the outside can be studied, too, by dissolving the, the DNA off of it. Would you have any tips for our Bigfooter listeners uh, about how to go about collecting um, samples of whatever um, that could potentially yield DNA results? Well, there's some that are just um, not my ideas by any means that a lot of people, like Todd Disatel have mentioned in the, some of his podcasts and, um, and Jeff Meldrum and others, you have to be careful you don't contaminate it. The best thing is to use um, sterile forceps. You can buy them in individual packets uh, from a forensic um, warehouse, uh, supply warehouse, um, and gloves and a mask so you don't breathe on it. And I'd put something on your head to make sure you don't drip sweat or hair or anything or dandruff on it either. So. You kind of go in like a doctor does uh, at an operation. You could even put on a, a, a special uh, scrub suit, you know, if you really want to be good about it and try, try to keep, you know, a really clean um, front to, to the sample. And, of course, put it in a, a sterile container and uh, preserve it in alcohol is usually the way they do it. And uh, this has been described online, so... This is not new, um, but I, I would really think hard about what kind of analyses you want to do because when you say a DNA analysis, that's very general. And as we've mentioned, primers are, are all important. And whether you want to do mitochondrial or whole nuclear genome, I'd start with the mitochondrial, frankly. And what region of it do you want to sequence, etc., etc. So there's, there's a lot of details that need to be thought, of, thought about and discussed with the analysts, the laboratory. And not the least of which is the funding of all this, because th this whole process is quite expensive still, isn't it? Yeah, I found that out. I, I, I self-funded these environmental samples, and, um, you know, I, I can afford it, but I'm, I can't do that all the time. <laughs> It'd be nice to get a group of people and a GoFundMe for some of this work. And I think um, I'm hoping that I can get some results that are promising enough to encourage other people to go out and do this kind of thing. And if I get this software, uh, that these programs completed and refined so average people can use them, um, this could be a, a, a huge advantage to people collecting these environmental samples. And, you know, a stream is kind of nice in that you get stuff from, could be miles away. You know, you don't have to be right on top of your source. Um, what happens is all these animals slough off DNA when they go through the water. The fish are already there and aquatic animals and so on. I got some beaver results, for example. <laughs> I got black bear too, and uh, other other mammals, uh, deer mice and stuff. But, um, you know, it's kind of nice that way, but also um, 
you've got to go through your results very carefully and, and um, understand what you have. And since there are other people in the woods, um, you know, urinating, defecating, sloughing off hair and hair and dandruff and stuff and going through the water, it's on their clothes, their DNA, and everything, you know, you're going to get some other human results. And what one needs to do is find sequences that are different, even just a mutation or two from, from other humans, and also find them more than once. As I said, in one sample, you're getting tens of thousands of sequences. Well, if just one of these shows something unusual, it's not convincing. You also have to look at the error scores on, on these and see if it, it, it was a good call, as they call it, for the base. And you got to have um, more confirmation of that same sequence in, in the sample. And then, to compare different samples at different times or different places in the stream. And hopefully there's some similarities there. So that's what I'm going through now. Now, if you're testing stream water, um, as I'm listening to this and thinking, okay, there's there's DNA material permeates the environment, essentially. Um, maybe, w w does it make any sense to actually test water from larger rivers because there's a higher chance with all the feeder streams and whatever else that the, our target species has sunk their feet into some sort of tributary of that larger river? Kind of like a bigger net in a way, if that makes sense? Yeah, I did both. And um, there is something to be said for the larger river. Just as you say, it collects from uh, a lot more tributaries. However, you're also going to get a lot of other things that, uh, of course, you won't know what tributary you got the interesting DNA from, but you're going to get a lot more uh, human stuff um, just from people who live in the area and septic systems and stuff that maybe... It's not like background open. noise, kind of. Yeah. Um, if you use smaller tributaries, you can focus um, on, on an area, and um, it'll also lead you, hopefully, to a place where you're more likely to, to actually observe some Sasquatch. So I think both are in order, as far as I can tell now. Now, uh, if we have a, um, a water source for the city of Portland nearby called Bull Run Watershed, um, and I, and most of the Bigfoot activity in this particular part where uh, Oregon, where I live, is kind of centered around the watershed. Um, it's pretty solid at this point. I think it's safe to say that there are Sasquatches in the watershed fairly frequently because it's tens of thousands of acres where no one is allowed. It's literally a twenty-four, twenty-five thousand dollar fine for fishing a tributary to this particular river. It's it, well, you know. National insecurity is a really good reason to have high national security. And they're worried about poisoning, or I don't know what it is. Um, but it's, it's the Bull Run supplies the city of Portland with its water. And there are Sasquatch reports all around it, all around it. Um, and I've even gotten a handful from within it from the people who work for the Portland Water Company. Um, so if you have a target area where you're pretty confident Sasquatches are, um, it's a pretty sizable river, I might add. Well, this is, this is no creek or a trickle. Um, would could would you target 
um, particular river systems in hopes of higher results, or like the Mill Creek watershed outside of Walla Walla, where a ton of evidence has been taken. Have you tried that avenue of actually targeting specific ones? Yes. Um, actually, the area that I collected these samples from has been um, thought uh, reported by others to have a lot of sightings and rocks thrown at them and all kinds of activity. And it's also where I saw my, near where I saw my uh, sighting. Um, so yeah, targeting certain areas. I mean, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go in the middle of Kansas and just do any river. You know, I think you're right. You focus on at least areas that, um, in a larger or, or smaller scale, uh, have a lot of promise. Yes. Um, would a Sasquatch have to step in the water to slough off any DNA material or can it just be nearby? It could be washed in, um, you know, let's say they urinated nearby and then it rains. Well, that that's going to get it into the stream. Same with defecation and other other ways of losing DNA in the woods. It it um, if it's close enough, it'll wash into the stream. That's interesting because I'm not sure you're aware of who Glenn Thomas is, but he's a witness. He's most famous about his, uh, he saw Sasquatches stacking rocks and digging out rodents from this tailless slope up in Mountain Hood National Forest. But he had more than one sighting. And another one of his sightings he had, he saw a Sasquatch and it basically took a dump in a river, um, right in the river. And I I thought that was interesting because I I know when I put my feet in water, I have to pee, you know. So um, there might be some sort of a connection between those two things there. Um, But if a Sasquatch did defecate into a river, how long would could one expect for that DNA material to stay in the river system? I mean, has there ever been any studies or any uh, inf- um, investigation into that question? Uh, I'm not aware of any, but that doesn't mean there aren't any. But I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, DNA will degrade in time. Um, there are uh, microbes that eat it and other things. So, and chemically as well, it, it can hydrolyze and, and so on. So the sooner you get it, the better. That's another unknown here when you sample a water stream, you know, um, how, how recent was, was the DNA deposited. It may affect whether you get any results or not. Um, but yeah, defecation, that would be excellent. And, uh, if you don't get the actual stool, then the water coming off it should have DNA in it, a lot of it, but you'll get DNA from everything he ate as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. I think, uh, Disatel said, uh, you have to collect the stool sample from like the scrape the outside of it. Cause that's the part that would have, uh, scraped against the intestinal walls or something. And that's the part that would just get dispersed in the water the easiest as well or the quickest for sure and of course the dispersion of the dna material throughout the river system would take some time as well Uh, if you're like three miles downstream we wouldn't expect it to be instantaneous but maybe a few days later perhaps now i understand there's some software that allows you to design your uh, sampling procedures in a watershed based on, I think, things like water um, flow rates and so on, and uh, typography and uh, topology of the network. Um, 
and I don't know what other parameters are involved, but it, it's used by people interested in fish. And uh, if they want to know the source of, uh, of the fish or where they breed or this kind of question, they use this software. Another example of the interdisciplinary studies involved in Bigfoot stuff is like hydrologists can participate in this as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, um, I didn't do any extensive uh, experimental design. I just knew that these bodies of water were near where sightings were. And I just kind of randomly really uh, selected locations and Obviously, locations are important and timing. Um, you know, things don't last forever, and so you probably have to take things over a period of time and make sure you don't miss something. And this was really a survey, and I'm, I'm developing my methodology for interpreting the results, but um, it's pretty obvious that more data will have to be collected to to be, uh, to be very um, meticulous and complete. So that, that sounds like uh, you've, uh, that's your main focus at this point. Moving ahead, you're working with the eDNA studies uh, with river systems and things like that. Or is, is there anything else uh, that you're working on that uh, would, uh, our, our audience would be listen, uh, interested in? No. Um, quite frankly, this is my first um, field study. I'm not a field biologist by any means. I, I'm a naturalist and an observer, but uh, so this this was a new experience, and obviously uh, I've learned a few things that I might do differently. Uh, so, but yes, at the moment this is it. Um, I'll have to see how this works out as to whether I want to do some more of this kind of work and who I might also encourage to do it. Um, some other people that I would share some methodology with, and um, hopefully they, they might look in some different places. And the ones you mentioned up there in Oregon, near Portland, and in uh, Washington State are, sound like excellent sources of um, waterborne DNA to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've literally had retired people from the Portland Water Department email me and say, and they called uh, the Bull Run watershed a Bigfoot preserve. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would I would start there if I were going to get involved in this, and uh, that that sounds sounds great. And uh, hopefully, I'll have some methodology worked out. Uh, people complain that this kind of data, environmental DNA, um, takes too much time to sort through, and I think they're doing it manually. And I'm not sure what their focus or their objectives are always as to uh, what, what they're looking for. Um, a survey of everything that's there or some specific species or whatever. But I think I'll have some, some pretty good recommendations when I'm done with this and some software that I, I hope will be easy enough to use. Well, um, have you spoken to Dr. Meldrum about his uh, eDNA samples um, from the Olympic Project nests? No, not not specifically, but I'm going to, and soon, because I would like to see if they did get any uh, interesting DNA sequences that may be unusual, and I certainly would like to compare them to what I find 
that, uh, any unusual DNA sequences. So um, that's going to happen. And um, I was a, one of the funders of the project, and I believe it was promised that results would be given to all of the funders. So I think I'm probably entitled to something. And uh, I don't think it's been written up formally, has it? No, I don't think so. And I know Dissatel is the guy who ran the sequences, and um, uh, they, I guess they got fragmentary, uh, fragmentary sequences. And Dissatel said they are they seem to be human. Um, Dissatel told me um, in a private conversation that he could tell me the ethnicity of the human based on what's going on. But I know Dr. Meldrum has also been looking at other avenues with other geneticists, whatever. Some a gentleman from UC Davis in particular, I believe, um, saying uh, that. Maybe, that maybe we're missing certain segments or something, but I don't know. Well, all this data is fragmentary in the sense that these are fragments of the DNA in the genome. You won't get a whole genome in one shot. It's all uh, broken up, okay, for the most part anyway. And so that's not unusual, but um, if he can tell ethnicity, then he must be doing... Um, a fairly complete mitochondrial DNA study um, because if you're just doing a short region to identify whether it's a human or a bear or a beaver, uh, you won't have enough information to say what the ethnicity is in, in most cases anyway. Well, see, yeah, maybe to reach out to Dr. Disatel and then Dr. Jeff Melterman's. Um, I will. Uh, that's a good suggestion and I intend to follow up on it. Um, I do need I do need to uh, and I hope I would have something to share with them as well. Oh, I, I think you've done a huge service to the community, um, and 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 the, and the science of the um, of the Bigfoot field as well by uh, writing your book. And it was just fa a fanta fantastic read. Although I'll tell you, um, a lot of it went over my head, man. But the nuggets that I took away from this, I said, oh well, perhaps better work could have been done. Uh, maybe a missed opportunity. But is it too late? Should we just write this off, or is there something that we can get out of the uh, Sasquatch Genome Project? Is there something of value that we can take away? At at this point? Well, um, Melba Ketchum claims that she has four terabytes of data, and not all of it appeared in the paper. Um, if there's some more data there, there's possibly um, sequences that might match something different than a bear and a dog. Uh, so, I mean, she's very reluctant to share any of, of that data. I've heard from other sources who've asked for it. Um, but I think, you know, if she opened up her raw data, not, not just the sequences, but the data that went behind them, um, I, I think some other people might be able to, to look at it. Um, now, I know one geneticist who would like to get a hold of it and look for other things so isn't that part isn't aren't, aren't papers when they publish like journal papers usually tr completely transparent with their data and whatnot or is it just like i found this and they don't let other people try to replicate the results or um most journals require you to submit in supplementary data because most of it is too extensive to to go into a paper which they try to limit to just the, the concise uh, results and conclusions and some description of the method. So, yeah, it, it should be available 
um, the sequences and even the raw the raw data that leads to the sequences. Now, um, I, I don't. Yeah, again, that was part of the publication dilemma that that she had, I believe, and. Uh, so yes, uh, the reputable journals, you should be able to reproduce um, their results from their raw data. Yeah, that's why you publish. Is I mean, I'm not a scientist, of course, but that's literally why you publish. Like, I found this, here's my data, you go do it too, and you're going to see that I'm right, and it, or you're going to see that I'm wrong, in which case you take the criticism and you adjust things. Well, the best scientists have that attitude. I'm not sure all of them do, but... Um, the, the ones who really don't care about who did this first and uh, who gets all the credit, who gets some of the credit, um, are very open about their results and their raw data, and they, they welcome constructive criticism. And um, I certainly myself wouldn't want to have something out there in the literature that's wrong. Uh, if if, I, if it's proven to be wrong, I, I would join in with those who have proven it to be so and, and commend them for their efforts. You know, uh, I, it's just a matter of ego, I guess. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in the truth, and um, I don't care if I find it or somebody else does or how many mistakes I make along the way, but, um, you know, you just, that's my attitude. Uh, I think the better scientists all feel that way, too. Well, let's hope that she does share all the raw data at some point, uh, because if she's right, uh, I say it all the time on this pro- on this podcast, the truth can withstand the scrutiny. Um, and if you don't share your data, that is functionally the same as not having data at all. It seems to me that all this stuff should just be out there for other people like yourself and other interested parties with other qualifications um, to look at and dissect. And again, if it's true, if it's right, it's going to, it'll withstand the scrutiny. It'll still be there being right after people are done looking at it. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And, um, so I don't know. Um, I think we do need some new data, however. Um, I'm not too optimistic about what, what you're going to find in her data. I might, I, you know, I might be wrong. There could be some gems in there. But if I were starting out in this from scratch, I think I'd try to get some of my own samples and, and um, try to get some, some of my own new data. Which is exactly what you're doing with the stream study, it sounds like. Yes, that's that's what I'm doing. And uh, I didn't, you know, I just did this this year. So, I mean, I, I spent eight years looking at other people's results and trying to learn from them, including, especially Ketchum's results. All right. Well, Dr. Hart, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and talking about uh, your studies and clarifying some of the things you've been delving into. Um, and of course, any of our listeners out there who want to listen or who want to check out this stuff to an extraordinary depth, by the way, um, far over my head, and I'm, I'm kind of a science nerd, a general science nerd in general. But um, this book, The Sasquatch Genome Project, A Failed DNA Study, um, is a fantastic book. Um, even though I don't understand a lot of the, um, the, the, the chemistry and what and, and the deep dives in here, there is a lot to take away out of this book. And I hope, I hope my listeners who are sincerely interested in digging deep into the science and learning a little bit about this stuff, and like they pick up this book and check it out. I, I don't think it's, they're going to be disappointed at 
at all. So, uh, Dr. Hart, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and uh, and spending some time with me today. Well, it's been a pleasure, Cliff, talking with you and getting some of your thoughts on these interesting subjects. Um, I, I really thank you for having me on the program, and um, hopefully I can report some results and maybe justify another discussion. I'll keep my ear to the ground for your next uh, next round of interesting results. Oh, that's for sure. You are definitely on my radar now. I think you've done fantastic work. So thank you so much, Dr. Hart. Thank you. All right, folks, there you go. Um, uh, again, check out this book, Dr. Haskell Hart's book, The Sasquatch Genome Project, A Failed DNA Study. Uh, Dr. Dr. Meldrum did the forward in this thing, and it uh, it's it is a lot to chew on. I'm not going to lie to you. Like this is a book that is deep. So if you are a geneticist, if you are a chemist, if you're a biologist of any sort, you're going to love this. You're going to love this. But even if you're just a generalist science nerd, a citizen scientist like myself, um, you are going to enjoy this book. It kind of dispels a lot of the myth and rumor, etc., with real hard numbers and science. Um, because everybody's heard about the the um, everybody's heard about Dr. Ketchum's study, and there's all sorts of rumors and people saying this about it and people saying that about it, and and it's just the, the gossip machine rolls. You know, we're the Bigfoot community. That's what we do. We gossip about other big uh, Bigfooters because so little Bigfoot stuff happens. Um, well, this gets right past all that junk, that outer layer of conspiracy and weirdness that surrounds the Ketchum study. This gets past that goes into the science, crunches the numbers, and um, talks about methodology, and it just so much, so much is in this book. I cannot recommend it enough. If you are a Bigfoot nerd like me who's interested in science, get this book. I, I, I can't recommend it enough. And I don't get anything for it. Don't get me wrong. You, you didn't, I'm not sponsored or anything like that. I just am recommending this book because um, it is just fantastic. Um, yeah, and there you go, guys. I'm sorry Bobo couldn't make it. Obligations are obligations. He's doing production work, and that's just the way it is sometimes. That's, but that's why we have two hosts. Bobo does it sometimes. I do it some other times, and most of the time we're together. But every time you're here, and we really, really appreciate you listening and enjoying the podcast. If you have uh, questions or comments, you can email us. Go to BigfootAndBeyondPodcast.com and push the contact button. And don't forget, about once a month or so, Bobo and I answer your questions. So if you want to ask Bobo and I a question about anything at all, there are no questions that are off limits. Um, you can, again, go to the website, BigfootAndBeyondPodcast.com, push the contact button, and ask us questions there. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. And uh, as Bobo says, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 